Merry Christmas, Grace. This morning we have the honor of sharing God's word together. Let us turn to Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 56. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in a pew right in front of you, and you can turn to page 856 to share along with us. Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 56. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And now we share Mary's song of praise, the Magnificat. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things in me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. Here we are, the last Sunday before Christmas. This is the final sprint. I look forward to seeing you all on Christmas Eve and on Christmas Sunday. Let me just make another plug. Invite your friends, neighbors, family members tonight to the CCC Community Christmas Celebration, next weekend to the services. Did you know more people are willing to accept an invitation to go to church at Christmas than any other time of the year? Make the ask. See what the Lord might do. We're in a series called The Weary World Rejoices. Taken from the Christmas Carol, O Holy Night. And I love this phrase because it really does capture the season so poignantly. Here's what I mean. Christmas is all about remembering and celebrating the birth of Jesus, the advent of Jesus, right? But Christmas is a, a curious season of opposites. A season of opposites. We, for instance, we live in a weary world, and that's self-evident. 
Wars and rumors of wars. Financial strain, inflation. You pick your thing that, that is burdening you, and we live in a weary world, and then all of a sudden, in the middle of that, this month descends upon us, and there's this strong call for us to rejoice. Opposites. Everywhere you go, there is this focus on, on one level on Jesus. You can't miss him. The, the, the songs at the stores are playing uh, uh, about Jesus, and, and the nativity scenes are everywhere, and you go to a kid's program, and you're watching uh, you know, different shows, and it's about Christmas, about Jesus, and Jesus is everywhere, and yet the reality is we are also very distracted from Jesus, aren't we? We're, sh we're so busy, we're shopping, we're stressing, we're cooking, we're, and none of those things are bad, but like we're, we're traveling, we're rapping, and we're like, ah, and we don't even think about Jesus. Opposites. This is a season focused on happiness. We, we hear cheesy lyrics like, if you want to be happy in a million ways, it's the hap hap happiest season of all. And so there's all this pressure to be happy, to experience joy, and yet, at the same time, this is a season more than any other, likely, that draws out this deep sense of, of sadness and, and loss and disappointment. Our senses are, are, are heightened to the losses in our lives, even in this season of happiness. You see, opposites. Today's message is rejoicing in God's great reversal. Rejoicing in God's great reversal. I want you to see that this passage is, uh, is teaching us that it's okay. It's okay in this season to admit that life is hard. It's okay in this season to feel the pain of, of living in a broken world. But the advent of Jesus, advent simply means coming. The coming of Jesus is meant to change us and to change our perspective. It's meant to show us that God can take our darkness and, and shine light into it. We saw that a few weeks ago. Uh, this season is meant to show us that God can take our sadness and infuse real joy. Not fake a million ways to be happy, but real, deep-seated joy. God can take our brokenness and, and bring healing. Advent is not just about opposites, it's about a reversal. You see, this passage shows us that God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom, that, that where the path to greatness is the path to humble yourself, and the path to joy is often through sorrow, and the path to hope is often through discouragement and maybe even despair. Christmas reverses everything, so now a weary world can rejoice. How do we get there? That's what I want to show you this morning from this text. How do we get there? Lesson number one, be in awe of the God who came down to rescue you. We pick up the story in Luke 1 after Mary has been already visited by the angel of God. His name is Gabriel. And he tells Mary that he has come with good news, that she will conceive and give birth to a child and, he will, and, they will, and they'll name him Jesus and he'll be the son of God and he will reign on the throne of his father David. 
Now, this is stunning news, not just good news, it's stunning news for a number of reasons. First of all, Mary's a virgin, and she's only engaged to be married to Joseph. Second of all, she's a peasant teenager from an obscure town, and yet God tells her through the angel, you are highly favored, you will carry in your womb the hope of the world, the Messiah King. And she doesn't understand it. She has, she has the, like, the, like she scratched the surface on the understanding of what's about to happen to her and what's going to happen in the world and for all of eternity. But she submits to God in this incredibly courageous act of faith. She's going to have a child before she's married, which means her life will essentially be ruined. In this culture, it wasn't normal like today to have a child then get married. In this culture, if you're pregnant before married, your life is over. You'll be ostracized, you'll be shamed, you'll be shunned, you'll be rejected. She knows this, and yet she still submits to God's plan. You see, there's no joy yet. There's no joy when she's talking to, to, to the angel. There's submission, there's, there's a, a giving herself up, there's faith. But, and so Gabriel, I think Gabriel senses that. He knows that this isn't just good news, this is also heavy news. And that's why he mentions in verse, thick, verse 36 that Mary's cousin Elizabeth, who is also beyond child-rearing years herself, never was able to get pregnant her entire life. Now she is miraculously pregnant and he sort of brings up Elizabeth as if to say, you should go see Elizabeth. That will encourage your heart. And so she does. Verse 30, uh, 39 here in our text, it says she, she makes this 100-mile journey to the, to the hill country of Judea, of Judah. With haste, she hurries to see her cousin because she's desperate for, for encouragement and hope. And as soon as she gets there, it says she walks through the door and Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. And look what she says, verse 42. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Mary is very uncertain about her future. And in the midst of that, Elizabeth says, the baby inside of you is reason for great celebration and reason for joy. Now, maybe Mary was getting there. Maybe that's the journey she was on as she traveled the four or five days to get to, to Elizabeth's house. We don't know, but we know for certain is that going to see Elizabeth helped transform Mary's submission from duty to delight. And we know that because after hearing Elizabeth say these things, after spending time with Elizabeth, that's when Mary burst into this beautiful song, the Magnificat, the first Christmas carol. Notice how Elizabeth calls the unborn Jesus, my Lord. The mother of my Lord. She recognizes, by the inspiration of this Holy Spirit, that the child inside of Mary 
zygote Jesus, right? He's literally a few cells. He's not even like, oh, three months and now he's alive. No, like literally just conceived sometime between Gabriel saying go and she gets there. He's there in there. This is my Lord. Five cell Jesus is my Lord. The chosen one, the Messiah, she's in awe. Not only that, it says John the Baptist, who is about six months now in, in Elizabeth's womb, he leaps for joy when unborn Jesus enters the room. Isn't that amazing? If you read back in verse 15 to 17, when, when, when Elizabeth and, John, and Zechariah, when Zechariah is told about John as he'll be the forerunner to Jesus, he's going to prepare the way for the Lord. And so we see, even before John was born, he's fulfilling his divine assignment to bear witness, this is the Savior of the world. I'm in the womb, but I can't not do what God has called me to do. That baby, that five-cell Jesus, that one who doesn't have fingers yet, but he's alive, he's a baby, that baby is going to save our people from our sin. And I can't help but celebrate that, even now. John is leaping for joy. He knows that this is the one who's going to bring forgiveness. This is the one who's going to reverse the curse of death. Notice this other thing. And I miss this every other time reading this until this week. There's absolutely no jealousy in Elizabeth's attitude toward Mary. You say, well, why would there be any jealousy? Yes, Elizabeth was pregnant herself, but remember, it took years of crying out to God. Years of infertility, years of sorrowing, years of the shame of her barrenness. And this young girl walks in, Mary walks in, and she's carrying the king of the universe. I mean, look, I got this blessing, and of course you got to up at me. I'm carrying a prophet, you're carrying the king of kings. No, no resentment, no bitterness, no jealousy. She rejoices in God's greater blessing in Mary's life. Elizabeth didn't let Mary's greater blessing infringe on her ability to rejoice in God's blessing on her life. That's because she understands that all, God is, all that has been done for her is all because of God's grace too. It's all grace. This isn't a measure, this is not measuring. It's not like obedience-based based blessing. In fact, in verse 43, she marvels at God's kindness to her. I can't believe, I can't believe I get to see the mother of the Lord. Can you rejoice at the blessing of God in someone else's life, even when it seems greater than yours? Several things are happening here that I think help us to be in awe of the God who came down to rescue you. First, Mary doesn't get this shocking news that she's going to be pregnant and then get on her own. She doesn't say, I just need to be by myself. I just need to isolate myself. I need to figure this out on my own. No, she gets this news and she seeks out fellowship with other believers. Did you see that? that and that's when it all comes together. It doesn't come together when she's on her own. It doesn't come together on the journey to Elizabeth. It comes together. That when, when does the joy break through? It's when she's in community. That's the beauty and the power of community. Look, are you dealing with some trouble in your life right now? 
Do you want to understand better what God is doing in your life? Are you wrestling with the claims of of Christianity? Are you dealing with doubts about about life, about the Bible? You're not going to get the answers on your own. You need Christian community. If the mother of the Lord needed it, you and I probably need it too. Because that's how God wired us to see. And I'm encouraging you today, seek it out. Yes, Mary left her encounter with Gabriel with faith, but it was a very weak faith. But being with Elizabeth strengthened her faith. It bolstered her faith. Don't you go isolating now at this season. Don't you think, I'm, I'm hurt. I, I, I need to isolate from my family. I need to isolate from my friends. I need to just focus on my own. I mean, that's what a lot of people are doing. And you know, the COVID just exacerbated that. Oh, I got to just stick together. No, don't do it. It will destroy your heart. It will destroy other people's hearts. You'll never get to the place where you can say, my soul magnifies the Lord when you're all alone, isolated. I'm telling you, it's not, that's not how God wired us. Mary gets there because she goes to Elizabeth. Secondly, here are these two women. One pregnant before her time and the other pregnant after her time. And when they get together, what do they do? They're both just marveling at what God has done. Elizabeth is rejoicing. Mary's singing. Can you imagine the, the three Greatest decades of human history are about to unfold, right? And God chooses two poor, obscure women to make it happen. And together, as, they, as, they, as this sinks in, as they begin to see what God is doing in their lives, that's when Mary bursts into song. That's when Mary begins to praise God for what he's done in her personally. Notice that's what she begins with. She begins with praising God for what he has done in her life. And then she broadens it to to beyond her. She worships God with her whole being. Verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord. That's where we get the word magnificat. That's the Latin word for magnify. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She recognizes She recognizes right now, finally, that God is not just changing a part of her life. He's not just coming to help her be be a better version of herself. No, God came down, he entered her life in the person of Jesus, and that was going to change her to the very core of her being. Mary says, I rejoice in God my Savior. Let me just say a couple things here. This challenges those of you who may have been raised Catholic. Why would she need a savior if she was morally perfect? She needs a savior because she's a sinner just like everyone else. She needs a savior because every single person, including Mary, is saved by grace alone, through faith alone. But, this, but she also says something. She says, all generations will call me blessed. Which means if you grew up Protestant, you might need to grow in your appreciation for Mary. She recognizes that she's going to be a model for humble, joyful, courageous faith. She is absolutely amazed that God would extend such grace to her. And so should we. This teenage girl does something incredible by walking this journey. She's just stunned. God, how how could you use me? Why would you do this in my life? And can I just say, that should be the posture of every single Christian. 
Anyone who truly understands the gospel should have this sense of wonder, maybe even a sense of surprise, that you are a Christian. Like, what does it mean to be a Christian? Many people think, maybe you're here today and you think, if I ask, what does it mean to be a Christian? You, you might say, well, it means going to church. It means obeying the Ten Commandments. It means living a moral life. Many people think being a Christian is about what you do for God. And in fact, that's what every other religion does teach. That's why there's some confusion that, that every other religion teaches that you're accepted by God because of what you do. But please hear me. That's not Christianity. That's not Christianity. And you can reject Christianity. That, yeah, I, you, you have the right to do that this morning. But don't reject it because it's like every other religion. Understand Christianity is never about what you can do for God, but what he is, about what he has already done for you. That when you understand the significance that Jesus came down for you, that you, even though sinful and flawed as you are, Jesus came for you to rescue you, to give you the greatest gift of all, forgiveness of sin, eternal life. When you understand that, there will be this sense of wonder like, God did that for me? I mean, does he, does he know what I've done? Does he know what I'm like? Like, I know I look, you know, I can make myself presentable. I can wear the red and black at Christmas. I can look like a, a good, hap, hap, happy sign, but like, does he really know? He does. He knows, he knows all the skeletons in my closet, and he says, yeah, I came down for people like you. Does it, does it, have, do you ever, do you ever pray and go, wow, God, I'm, I'm forever yours? Like, never, ever, you'll ever leave me? Yep, never leave. I will go to heaven no matter what? Yep. Wow. Wow. To be a Christian doesn't mean you just add Jesus to your life. To be a Christian means Jesus becomes your life. Have you taken time this season to consider all that God has done for you? That you're adopted into his family, that your sin doesn't define your life, your past is forgiven, your future is secure, all you in all of a God who came down to rescue you. Lesson number two. No matter how life is going, God is still worthy of your worship. Mary starts this song by worshiping God for what he's done for her personally, but then she broadens it to focus on how God is working uh, in his people as a whole. And she does three things. She worships God for his power, his holiness, and his mercy. Why does she worship God for his, his attributes? Why does she name the attributes and then and exalt him for his attributes? Because the ultimate purpose of Christmas is to show us who God is. And she says, God is mighty, verse 49. He who is mighty has done great things for me. He's done great things for Mary. Only God could cause a virgin to conceive a child by the Holy Spirit himself. And it wasn't like Gabriel told her this news and she was like, oh, okay, yeah, it makes total sense. I get it. I'm good with that. No, that's not how she responds. She's like, uh, I, how does that work? What's going to happen? She needed Gabriel to remind her that she could believe this stunning news and that's why he has to tell her, listen, Mary, nothing is impossible with God. Do you have trouble believing that a Jewish baby born 2,000 years ago was the uncreated creator and God incarnate? That, that, if you do, you're, you're in good company. Mary struggled with that too. 
That's not a modern perspective. Stop listening to these ridiculous authors who think they're genius because they want you to question something that's been hard to believe for 2,000 years. It's not modern. It's not novel. It's not cool because it's new. Many have struggled to believe this. Even people who witnessed the power of Jesus literally before their eyes, he healed diseases, he calmed the storm, he multiplies food, and they still go, I don't know. I'm not sure about this guy. Do you believe God is all-powerful? I'm not asking just for intellectual knowledge. I'm talking about something that, that, that will shape how you view God and shapes how you view your life and live your life. Why do you struggle to share the gospel with your coworkers or your friends or your neighbors? Why is that something you and I flinch with? Why do we think, ah? Uh, isn't it because we're afraid of what might happen? What they'll say or do? Why do we struggle to give generously? Isn't it, it's not just finances are tight. No, it's also because we don't trust that God will be mighty to provide for us. That's the struggle beneath the struggle. You say you believe God is mighty, but you don't live as if you believe it. You don't live with the confidence that if God is for you, who can be against you? Do you see the Christmas story as God showing his great power that the creator came down as one of us? Do you see how that matters for your life? That just like Mary, even if life gets harder because you're living in obedience to the Lord, you can have the same confidence that he who is mighty can do great things for you. He already has. Notice she also worships God for his holiness, verse 49. Holy is his name. What does it mean that God is holy? We talked about this when we studied Exodus a few months ago. He's perfect. He lacks nothing. He has no sin. And to be holy means he is opposed to sin. Our struggle is that we're so used to sin that, that it, it kind of just goes right. We're, we're fine. It's okay. Racism, gossip, self-righteousness, pride, sexual immorality, it's a normal part of life, but God never gets used to sin. And the reason Jesus came down is because we are sinful and we reject God for lesser gods. And because God is holy, his nature demands that sin be punished. That's what Jesus came to do. That's why Mary could rejoice. Jesus came to satisfy God's holiness by dealing with your sin. Are you worshiping a God the God for his holiness? You see, if God wasn't holy, Jesus would not have come to rescue you. When you think about all that God did for, in, through Jesus to deal with your sin, to die a shameful death, be rejected by the Father, bear all our guilt, does it lead to worship? Mary also worships Jesus, worships God because he is merciful. Verse 50 his mercy is for those who fear him. Verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Mary understands things very clearly here. God owes her nothing. And yet God has chosen to give her everything. But this isn't just about Mary. Her story 
profoundly illustrates what God has done time and time again because she acknowledges God's mercy is available for all who fear him. Verse 50. Mercy means God treats us better than we deserve. The word for mercy here is a rich word. It's a word used in the Old Testament to signify God's loyal love, his faithfulness, his graciousness. Can I just say, sometimes we need to, we need to be able to step back and just acknowledge Jesus is kinder to us than we are to ourselves. If you're struggling to worship God for his mercy, start with the things that maybe you take for granted. Did you wake up today with a roof over your head? Did anyone turn on the water and it turned warm? And you didn't have to heat it up or go, you know, put it under a fire? Did you, did you have food this morning? Did you put on clean clothes? I mean, I could keep going. How did you get here? You got here. That's the point, right? And by the way, when we're talking about a here, isn't it amazing that we have a here? Good grief. Wow. Oh, the mercies of God. Praise him for his great mercy. God's mercy is evident in taking this poor, young, unmarried peasant girl and allowing her to be the one to nurture, care for, and raise the Savior of the world. She got a front row seat on the greatest life ever. She also recognizes her mercy in how he helped Israel. He says, you have helped your servant Israel, verse 54. She's hearkening hearkening back to, to the Exodus story. God heard the Israelites cry for deliverance while they were enslaved in Egypt and he rescued them by his strong arm and he brought them out of slavery through the Red Sea. He brings down the mighty, talking about Pharaoh. He exalts those of humble estate, this lowly group of Israelites, and he leads them to the land that he promised their father Abraham. And if you know the story, you know he did all that not because of their obedience, but in spite of their disobedience. That's mercy. He doesn't give them what they deserve. Why is Mary celebrating God's mercy? Because she's making it clear it's it's not just for her or even the nation of Israel. It's for anyone who will bow in awe of the God who came down in Jesus Christ. That you don't have to do anything to earn his mercy. It's given as a gift. Can I just ask you, do you need God's mercy today? Christian, non-Christian, do you need mercy? Cry out to him. He will never turn away a genuine desire for mercy. How do I know? Because in the Old Testament, in Lamentations chapter 3, it says his mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. This is our God. Look, because God is holy, he must do something about our sin. Because God is mighty, he's able to do something about our sin. And because God is merciful, he is willing to do something about our sin. He sends Jesus to rescue us. No matter what what circumstances you're in today, you still have a God who is holy and mighty and merciful. Is that the God you're worshiping today? Is he worthy of your worship no matter how life is going 
I can tell you this, when God's people celebrate the Lord for who he is, it will lead us into joy. Lesson number three, rejoice in God's great reversal plan. Mary is singing about the great reversal of God. She says God is all about humbling the proud and lifting up the humble. Mary said God God fills the hungry but sends the rich away empty. If you look at history, not just in Mary's time but up until now, you will find that those who are in charge generally are those who are wealthy and powerful. And there's nothing wrong with wealth or power. The problem is those who have wealth and power often give in to pride because of their wealth and power, and that leads to oppression. Case in point, Mary is living under the oppression of Herod, right? He's he's wicked. He's horrible. The Israelites are waiting for someone to liberate them, not just from Herod, but from Rome itself. Fast forward to today, that's our world too. Oppression power corrupting, wealth corrupting. And yet here she is telling God's story. She's saying she has insight. Obviously the Holy Spirit's giving her insight that that the great reversal of God has now come. That the rich think that they have it all, they're going to go away empty. That the hungry who think that they have nothing, they're going to be filled. You see, at the conception of Jesus, not even when he's born, at his conception, the great reversal has begun. The arrival of Jesus began this this upheaval, this reversal of God's system, and it's an already but not yet reversal. Please hear that and understand what I'm saying. It's an already but not yet reversal. We live in this tension that the already has begun, but it's not yet completed. And yet one of the temptations in our waiting is to want to control the timing of God's reversal. Right? We want God to finalize the reversal right now. Do it now, God. I'm tired of this. Make it right. What you just promised through Mary, do it. And then he doesn't, or not in the way we want it, or not the time we want it, and then our hearts grow cold and bitter. We see the, the, the wicked prospering, and we see injustice, or we look at our own suffering. God, what, why aren't you doing it? And some of us are mad at God for not delivering on promises that he never even made. Jesus has won the victory, yes. He says, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. It's an already but not yet kingdom upside down. It's an already but not yet upheaval. It's an already but not yet reversal. Do you realize that Mary is celebrating God's reversal even though it doesn't happen for her immediately? She continues to be poor and ostracized. Jesus is born in a barn or in a rock quarry somewhere in a hill. Somewhere, no one else, like there's no other room. They're they're so poor, when he's eight days, they present him to the temple and and they don't even provide the thing that the law says, here's the normal thing to do. But if you're really poor, you bring two turtle doves. And Mary and Joseph are like, that's all we got. She continues to be poor and ostracized. They run to Egypt for several years because Herod's killing all the babies. And yet I believe she kept on singing. Maybe even this song. 
How do I know? Well, how could I say that? I don't know for sure. But I believe if you look at the words of Jesus, and if you look at the words of Mary's other son, James, you see echoes of this song. Mary says, all generations will call me blessed. She says, the hungry will be filled. Then Jesus grows up and does his Sermon on the Mount, and what does he say? Blessed are the hungry, for they shall be filled. Mary says, God has brought down the mighty, and he exalts the humble. And then James comes along, and he writes, humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Where do you think they heard that? From their mom? Mary kept believing. She kept rejoicing in God's great reversal. Maybe Mary would sing this song at home, reminding her family of God's faithfulness, even when she was waiting for this story that she sung here for, for it to come true, waiting for God's great reversal to come. And it all came, and she had her doubts, and there was a point where she, she said, Jesus must be out of his mind. She didn't understand it all. And then it all came to a head when she has to watch her son tortured and murdered on a cross for crimes he never committed. She literally had to watch her boy die. And Mary wasn't singing anymore. Maybe she was wondering, God, you promised mercy on those who fear you. You promised to help Israel. Why does it have to look like this? How can this be your plan? You see, she was witnessing, unbeknownst to her, the greatest reversal of all. God the Son who had all power and authority, humbled himself not just in becoming a baby and a man, he humbled himself by enduring the agony of the cross. And in his humiliation, the greatest rescue plan was being accomplished. Because when Jesus was on the cross, sin's curse was being broken for all who would put their trust on him. On the cross, Jesus was being crushed so that you would never be crushed by your sin. On the cross, Jesus was condemned as the worst sinner so that through faith in him, you would never be condemned for your sin. On the cross, Jesus was rejected by the Father so that you would never be rejected by your heavenly Father. And three days later, Mary got to see the greatest evidence of this reversal when she saw Jesus resurrected from the dead, proving his power over sin and death. And maybe when she first saw her risen king, maybe when she saw her son risen from the dead, maybe she, sat, she, she bowed and sang this very song, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, you Jesus, my Savior. Christian, what would it look like to have a song like this in our waiting that would sustain us in all the ups and downs of life? A song that would help us rejoice in God's plan when we don't understand God's plan. Some of us are here today and you're ready to rejoice, and that's awesome. Christmas has filled your heart with peace and joy and hope, and, and you're thankful for his mercy, and I praise God for that and, and enjoy that. But others have come in with great pain because the losses that you have felt and experienced are deep. You're grieving disappointment or, or maybe you're ashamed because of the sin in your life, the sin in your past, 
And yet, here you are. Look, you showed up singing, and you're listening to God's word, and you're praying. It took courage for you simply to show up today. What we're doing here as we gather is we're reminding ourselves of God's great reversal story. And Jesus has invited us into that story, a story that is powerful enough to overcome our failures, our doubts, and our wounds. If you're not a Christian, can I just tell you what you need most today is not a better life, is not a better relationship, is not more money. You need a Savior. What is stopping you from turning from your sin today, now, and trusting in Jesus? Whatever you've been looking to for security and identity and value in life, say, okay, this is not going to provide it. I need a Savior. I need a treasure that can never be taken away. I need an identity spoken over me that is not earned or achieved but given as a gift. What are you waiting for to trust Jesus as Savior? Christian, I pray that you are filled with a deep-seated joy this season, a joy that is rooted in the reality that God keeps his promises. You know why? Because there's a day coming when all of our hoping right now will be a reality. There's a day coming when we will experience not only everlasting, but ever-increasing joy. You see, when we will have been with Jesus 10,000 years from now, shining like the sun, we're going to look back on our earthly journey and all the dark days and all the pain and all the sorrow, and we will marvel on that day that the great reversal is finally complete. Rejoice in God's great reversal now in anticipation for it to be complete. Let's pray. Father, we need you. If we don't know anything else, we know that. We need you today. Would you come fill every part of our hearts where we feel the loneliness, where we feel the, the, the loss, when we feel the void or the darkness. God, I pray that as a church, we would be in awe of you yet again. Renew our awe. May, it not, may we not get bored or tired of the same old gospel message. May it fill us with a sense of wonder this, this Advent season. That no matter how life is going, no matter circumstances, good or bad, we might continue to worship you because you are worthy. You have proven that you are worthy. And oh God, in our waiting, we, are, we stand in this gap between already and not yet. You have already accomplished the victory. You already came, lived and died and rose again. And yet you, we are waiting for you to come back to restore all that has been lost, to drive out the darkness completely and fully and to make all things new. Jesus, we pray with the Apostle John in Revelation Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. But Lord, we will trust your timing even when we don't understand it. Give us this kind of joy today as an act of your mercy. Renew the joy of your people and may the joy of the Lord be our strength today. I pray over my church. I, I beg of you, God, do this beautiful, glorious work 
because of our beautiful, glorious Savior, Jesus. Amen.